Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 105 for the week ending June 1, 2018, the We're Still Number One edition. First, a word about our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent, integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor's website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In today's episode, Jay and I took a wide-ranging look at several compliance topics. We review the GDPR commentary after its go-live date of May 25. We consider modernizing compliance a viewpoint from the front lines. We take a look at an article by Jonathan Marks on the parameters of third-party due diligence on the supply chain side of things. We consider Roseanne, her termination, by ABC and what it means for the compliance practitioner. We take a look at how texting can expose your company to both compliance and legal liability. We note that <coughs> Fund Leg Mason reserved $67 million for an FCPA settlement. Mike Volkoff says that compliance officers need to up their game in a very provocative blog post entitled Compliance and the Reckoning, which we discussed. discuss. And we consider the limitations on big data and compliance programs. We have a wide-ranging discussion. I know you'll enjoy it. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 105 of This Week in the FCPA, the week ending June 1, 2018, the We're Still Number One edition. Uh, Together with Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen, we are back for another week of looking at some of the top compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, we had a a pretty interesting week, I thought. Uh, First of all, we will note that the Complete Compliance Handbook still sits at number one in the rankings, uh, Amazon's business, new releases in business and ethics. So, um, that uh, is the reason for the title of this episode. But we also had a really interesting week in uh, ethics and compliance. So you want to just jump right into it? Yeah. Um, last Friday, the uh, GDPR directive came into force, and this shoots up to our number one on the list of topics. So, Tom, tell us what people have been talking about with regards to GDPR. So, um, yeah, that was a great intro, Jay. And uh, I guess the commentary since that time has really been, if not confusion, perhaps questions, questions on how it's going to be enforced. uh, What are the regulations? Uh, We've got 28 different uh, regulators, how they will uh, coordinate with each other, if if at all, uh, who will be in charge of enforcement, uh, really lots of questions. Uh, The commentary prior to GDPR was focused more on how do you comply with the new law, and now there seems to be questions. And a couple of those questions that I thought were uh, significant for the compliance practitioner were, 
one raised by Ben DiPietro in uh, the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Report, where he asked, or at least raised the question, that GDPR is fuzzy on whistleblower rules. And this is something that every compliance practitioner, I think, needs to uh, think about, certainly within the context of their own whistleblower program. What personal identifying information do you have? How is it stored? How long do you need it? Uh, all of those questions, uh, plus the uh, any anonymous tips that come in, how are you going to uh, to deal with those? It's uh, really um, potentially a steep set of penalties if you get it wrong. So uh, compliance practitioners need to, to really be um, cognizant of compliance and non-compliance around GDPR for whistleblowers. The next, Jay, was a, I thought, an interesting angle that I had frankly not thought about, um, which was an article by Cheryl O'Neill, who is the director of product management at SEAL Software, which uh, she entitled Contracts Are Hidden GDPR Risks. And in her article, she considered the hidden risks contracts pose for compliance and then why technology, machine learning, and AI may be uh, a key way to get actionable visibility into uh, information which is in contracts. And the question she raised, Jay, is do you have GDPR-sensitive uh, personal identifying information in your contracts? Uh, and are your contracts GDPR-compliant? Um, recognizing that if you're a uh, major international, <clears throat> multinational uh, company with uh, operations literally across the world, particularly in Europe, so that you're subject to GDPR. How are you going to review all of those contracts? And that was really the, the AI technology and machine learning angle she posited that you could run large numbers of contracts with the keyword searches or other words that you, if you develop a data bank. Uh, I recognize that that may be a little bit more in your wheelhouse as the former Mr. Translations before you became Mr. Monitors. But I thought it was a really interesting angle that I had really not considered of just a traditional commercial contract, business to business between two uh, multi-billion multinational companies, yet there may be GDPR uh, implications. And um, even if they're not implications, she certainly uh, are, uh, advocates that you uh, consider that possibility and review contracts. So lots of questions about GDPR. Um, where it goes at this point, no one knows. And with those questions, I think you have a lot of opportunity to. And hearkening back to my days as Mr. Translations, uh, you know, when we were helping out on all these investigations, e-discovery was really such, um, you know, such a, a category that ate all those costs. And it's basically that same technology that in e-discovery, you're trying to leverage AI to find a relevant set of documents and maybe only, you know, go through 5% of your hundreds or millions of pages of docs. And this is almost the, the similar application for e-discovery technology, but with a different aim here, trying to figure out whose uh, personal identifiable information you have. So uh, I think the technologists are going to be able to come in and, uh, you know, it, it, it does seem overwhelming, but as they say, you know, how do you eat an, ap eat an apple? No, how do you eat an elephant one, one bite at a time? <laughs> 
Uh, next up, we're gonna we've got an article from uh, Jacqueline Jager, our colleague over or your colleague over at Compliance Week, and she has a nice little wrap up of um, basically how you modernize compliance and a viewpoint from the front line. Uh, this was taken from one of the panels that we uh, sat in, and we spoke about this a little bit last week when uh, Wei Chen was asked about who, who she would have on her team to uh, build an ethics and compliance department, and she had remarked that she would hire data scientists, auditors, social scientists, journalists, and marketers and engineers. So she really took a look at trying to have a cross-functional, cross-functional collaborative team to work on this. And there were definitely similar comments from the folks who were there. Um, another thing that she said it, that a lot of people may not really take into account is that it's good to have the policies and the procedures and, you know, people taking training, but there's really no um, substitute for getting out on the shop room floor or getting out on the front lines and talking to people and see how you're um, compliance rules actually fit into the business rules and compliance people might be good at speaking compliance but they sometimes can need a little shoring up and speaking business so if you can get out there and talk to the functional departments and um, you know really learn uh, what's happening out in your business areas you can be a more effective uh, ethics and compliance leader and then the last uh, part of this article um, we talked about um, using some kind of, um, I guess, gamification. And there was something where uh, they actually tried to entice people to uh, pick the wrong answer, and they had a virtual jail, and pretty quickly that jail filled up by all your uh, all the people who were doing the simulation. So if your cho employees make uh, the wrong choices in a room playing a game, Think about what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So a great article by Jacqueline, and we're linking to it in the show notes. Uh, so next up, um, Jonathan Marks uh, posted an article around third-party due diligence. And, Jay, why I wanted to, to bring this up was um, – Obviously, uh, uh, third-party uh, risks are still the greatest risk in the anti-corruption compliance space around the FCPA. I think that's well recognized in the compliance profession. Yet, I think it's always good to have a review of third-party due diligence. What is third-party due diligence? How do you do it um, and the process to go through it? And I think Jonathan has done a great service uh, by uh, posting this article. And he basically lays out uh, what you need to do, which is uh, – he focused on uh, suppliers uh, on the supply side, but he said you do a risk assessment and then you figure out from there really what uh, your categories of suppliers are. And he broke it down into uh, four categories, high-risk suppliers, low-risk suppliers, suppliers of uh, goods and services in a low-risk country, and then uh, um, low-risk uh, uh, suppliers of goods <coughs> – general goods and products so that uh, things that are um, everyone sort of buys and supplies can be uh, given the lowest level of risk. What this does, Jay, is it really gives you a way to, to focus on, particularly in the supply chain where you can have tens of thousands of companies contracted to your business, a way to think through how to get your arms around it and how to uh, perform an accurate level of due diligence 
uh, or set up categories so you can perform an accurate level of due diligence. And when a, a regulator comes knocking, you can show them the process. Then you can show them who uh, who you've looked at in the due diligence. So, you know, kudos to Jonathan for uh, putting this out there to remind us about this. So, Jay, next we had a story from your former world of uh, entertainment, although this is from the world of television. I think you would uh, probably not have uh, stooped so low as to work in television, being the uh, high-minded, high-flying movie screenwriter that uh, you formerly were. But uh, we had uh, some really, um, I thought, uh, incredibly racist and vile comments by Roseanne and uh, a termination, if not instantaneously, literally within hours, uh, ABC canceled her show. So what does all that mean for the uh, compliance professional from your perspective? Well, it's just really, um, you know, th- this has been the story of the week and it's completely snowballed out there. Um, there's a, a great uh podcast that you and Matt Kelly did on uh, compliance into the weeds and Matt just really wrote a very succinct and powerful analysis um, of the situation which we link to in the show notes and basically with social media once you put something out there you can't bring it back you know you can you can delete it but people will have screenshots people will have read it and, um, you know, Matt just spoke about the, the vile tweet that Roseanne set out, and uh, it's really been on the forefront of everyone's mind. And, uh, you know, we often talk about um, having a, a, you know, a disaster preparedness plan and what you do. And Matt's point, one of the points he made is that when uh, Bob Iger woke up on uh, the Tuesday morning after Labor Day. Uh, the last thing he thought he was going to be doing is having to pull um, a top-rated show off the air and, and fire the star. And this has just created um, lots of backlash. Uh, Samantha B on TBS had an unflattering term, which he referred to the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump. Uh, Keith Oberman has uh, been a, a fervent critic of the president and has used nasty terms to decide him. So uh, there really is a lack of decorum out there. And um, this all falls into something that um, when your company goes live on uh, social media, where, whereas uh, if you're Starbucks and uh, you have an issue with uh, racial profiling that gets snapped up on uh, Facebook, it gets released out into the world and at this point, you have lost your ability to investigate, to game plan, to figure out what you're going to do. Uh, ABC and Starbucks were both put in very reactive positions. And at that point, you have to hope that your, um, you know, your leadership has the, uh, the, right, uh, sit, the, the right ethics to make the proper call. And, um, you know, Matt also pointed out that it was kind of ironic that this whole thing came down the day that Starbucks was doing uh, their training of their personnel and they closed down all their U.S. stores. So um, this is going to continue to add fuel to the fire. It took the president several days to uh, actually opine on this. And now we're going to see this uh, battle fought out uh, on the tweets and on the Internet. So, uh Great podcast by you and Matt and great article by him. Um, What are your thoughts on this, Tom? 
So the uh, the really the lesson I would uh, ask compliance practitioners to consider is is one of the things you uh, alluded to, which is the accelerant of social media. <clears throat> I think uh, it's well known if you put it out on social media, it's there really forever, whether you delete it or not. But uh, social media also accelerates uh, the length or, or um, length of time that something can becomes a thing and. Uh, uh, um, in uh, reverse uh, amount of time that you have to make a decision. So here we had ABC, literally Bob Iger, I think he made it at 2 p.m. Pacific time, uh, excuse me, 2 p.m. Eastern time, that's 12 Pacific. Uh, this really hit the, the social media world about 7 or 8 a.m. So that's how fast uh, ABC had to make a uh, decision. Two things for the compliance professional. One is your disaster management and perhaps disaster recovery do not anticipate working at the speed of social media, which is essentially the speed of light. Uh, you, you may need to rethink that. I used to say that if your name is on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times, you know that's what you need to avoid. Well, now, if uh, something about your company becomes a thing in social media, uh, that's what uh, can really be terrifying. So uh, you have to have a mechanism to get that information to your decision makers with as much information as you can to allow them to make a, a business call. Second, uh, what, what are your values and then your priorities? If the value you hold is that you will not uh, countenance with either your employees or those whose products you show or TV shows you put up uh, will engage in re violent racist comment, um, you need to uh, be able to respond to that. So the value that ABC showed and the priority it put off its watchers and listeners and consumers uh, long before its um, business partners and its advertisers raised a hue and cry, I think really spoke to the values and then the priority of ABC. So having those discussions, having that information in place, I think is going to be critical going forward. I don't know if ABC did or they just made this up on the fly, but by getting out ahead of this, by making the decision they did, which seemed to be in line with both their uh, viewership and most probably their advertisers, I think they were able to limit the damage to ABC, uh, the president's uh, uh, nonsensical tweets notwithstanding. All right. Next up, we've got um, more another technical article from uh, Corporate Compliance Insights. And uh, tell us what Mike Pagini thinks about uh, how texting can affect your company from a legal liability perspective. So, Jay, uh, you know, similar to the question that Cheryl O'Neill raised in GDPR around our contracts at Hidden Risk, I thought uh, this article really raised um, some interesting questions about an issue we don't really think about a lot, which is can text messaging expose your company to, to significant risk? So in the first area of risk, if you think back to the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy announced by Rod Rosenstein in late November 2017, uh, he specifically, uh, there, or rather the new policy specifically required companies to uh, keep messaging services and messaging apps, uh, which may self-delete messages to, to somehow capture those 
for regulators. Uh, but here, uh, I thought the author took it really a step further that companies need to have um, a mechanism in place that text messages will be kept in a searchable format that cannot be tampered with, destroyed, or otherwise disposed of by anyone deliberately or even accidentally. Um, so that really speaks to, to that issue. The second issue, though, that I have not really uh, considered is um, the legal – or rather the compliance risk in terms of what the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy had, but also legal risk too, just regular uh, uh, regular old civil lawsuits, things that uh, uh, your former uh, – <clears throat> Folks at Merrill may have helped companies do translations around uh, information, excuse me, electronically stored information, and courts are now demanding that as a part of a discovery in an e-discovery uh, filing or, or response to request. So you have to be proactive with your text messaging compliance and risk mitigation. And so I really wanted to, to call this out because many of the things that you may not think of as uh, potentially uh, giving rise to legal or compliance liability, particularly when a company has a bring-your-own-device policy that uh, is used for uh, corporate or, or business work, uh, you need to think through that and have a policy in place for that. And, you know, the corollary to that is that you all have all these different types of uh, data formats and data streams, so you have to be able to both capture the structured as well as the unstructured data and be able to have one single repository where all those things can be accessed very quickly in the, um, in the name of e-discovery. So, um, you know, there is uh, more and more technology out there it is all closing in on us and there's no excuses now. People have been warned and I think this is a, a timely article uh, especially with the tweet that went around the world today uh, this week that uh, this is something that you need to prepare for um, not to worry there still is stuff happening in the FCPA world and um, this week uh, Leg Mason uh, put uh, an update in their latest um, 10k form and they said that they are setting aside a reserve for um, an FCPA investigation. Uh, back in 2005 to 2007, they had acquired a group called Permal Group, and Permal did some uh, money fund management for Libya and uh, Qaddafi. And if this sounds familiar, this is a similar situation that Oxif had, that they had also done some um, funding for the Libyan Investment Authority. Um, what Leg Mason has done is they've set aside a reserve of $67 million, and that accounts for $31 million uh, that Permal earned from uh, the Libya business. Um, so we're going to be on the lookout for this to come in the, in the next quarter or so, and we should see uh, whether or not this uh, – how, I guess – cooperative leg mason was going to be and whether they get a declination or whether there's a monitor. So this is uh, something that we will be following from the FCPA world. Right, Jay. And uh, I really appreciated your reference to Oxif because we'd heard that private equity uh, was going to be uh, kind of in the, in the uh, sites now. And uh, this um, fund manager leg mason with their announcement 
really, I think, uh, confirms that. We don't know how many others uh, might be down the road, but for companies that have did business in Libya in that time frame, if you haven't taken a look at your operations, uh, you certainly need to do so. Uh, next up, our good friend Mike Volkov writes about compliance and the reckoning. What's Mike thinking about? So this was, I thought, a very provocative piece, Jay, and a very thought-provoking from Mike. Uh, he writes a lot of nuts and bolts, uh, kind of into the weeds pieces, but this this was not one of those. I thought this was more, much more thought-provoking, much more um, controversial. Uh, he basically said that um, the compliance profession and compliance practitioners have been put on a pedestal over the past 10 years or so uh, because of uh, increased enforcement actions by the government. Companies are understanding the need for, uh, obviously, have understood the need for compliance and that as the compliance profession has risen up, he fears that they are about to be hit. And he notes that once you're on the pedestal, there's only one way to go, and that's down. And the hit he means is if there is a violation after a company spends a lot of money to put in place a best practice compliance program, hires a high profile or, or high flying CCO, uh, they're going to be asked if there's a violation, what happened? And the, um, um, the problem is that no compliance program can ever uh, completely protect you from um, untoward activity by employees because simply that uh, there's going to be people involved in your compliance program. So uh, he advocates really a couple of things. One is education to make sure a senior execs and a board of directors understand that. But equally importantly, and I thought uh, as part of that education, though, was to give training to uh, separate and apart from explaining compliance, give training to compliance to boards and senior leadership on their roles so that uh, both boards, CEOs and senior management all have a very good understanding of what compliance is, what it can do, and frankly, their roles in setting tone and oversight. So um, a very interesting, thought-provoking and provocative article by Mike and uh, as always, uh, great stuff. Did I also read correctly, Tom, that another constituency that uh, Mike thought needed to be educated in the ways of compliance is our legal representatives in Congress? Uh, because they also can, I think, learn from the fact that it's just not going to be because you have a code and a program that that's going to stop things. And if Congress is legislating laws that affect our businesses, I think they also need to have a, an understanding of the uh, the limits and um, you know the applicability of how compliance and ethics uh, affect the modern business. Uh, yes, that's correct. He had an entire section on uh, the congressional issue, and and he he was he's Mike has been on the Hill. He's been on the Judiciary Committee as a staffer, and he understands that those people really know little or nothing about compliance, and certainly Congress knows nothing about compliance. And so there really needs to be an effort by, uh, I think, a couple of different uh, groups. One is uh, the regulators who do understand compliance, whether that be the DOJ or the SEC or other uh, regulatory. Uh, uh, department or agency, but it also has to be an effort from the compliance profession. The compliance profession needs to educate Congress. They need to uh, put out white papers explaining what compliance is. Uh, one of the criticisms, I think, fair criticisms of the compliance profession as a whole in the digital realty trust versus Summers uh, U.S. Supreme Court 
case was there was no unified or even response from the compliance community. No amicus brief filed, no uh, opinions or uh, uh, any information from the compliance community about why a compliance program, uh, someone who reports internally needs to have whistleblower protection that was completely missing from information provided to the Supreme Court. So hopefully uh, we can get that um, uh, information in front of Congress. Uh, but once again, a uh, great post by Mike. Yeah. So uh, our concluding article comes from the Risk and Compliance Journal. Henry Cutter talks about the limits of big data. And um, this past Wednesday in New York City, uh, Clearlight Advisors held its 2018 Compliance Summit in New York. And um, one of the things that they were saying is that uh, you can use big data to help inform um, what the risks are, but they can't use data alone to get to the risks. So you have to talk to people. You have to be there and you show them that you saw the data and get their thoughts as well. And um, Scott Lane from the Red Flag Group um, was uh, on the panel and he said, Data can be used to potentially validate and identify seriousness of risks and to perhaps predict when the risk is going to happen. But looking at the data to identify the risk is a fallacy. So, you know, if, if we get any themes from today's podcast, uh, data is out there and AI is out there and it can be used, but there are only there are always limits to the efficacy. So it takes part of compliance and ethics professionals Understanding their business, understanding their risk, whether they're third parties, uh, whether they're risks of dealing with uh, foreign governments. But once you understand that, <clears throat> data can help you potentially um, hone in and, and use your um, your information and look for where the problems are. But data is not the answer alone. Data can't live by itself. But data, when used intelligently, can help you make better decisions and you have to take that data and you also have to uh, marry it with the human element. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So we had some uh, untoward sports news, uh, I guess, uh, last weekend now. Um, one, one last week and one uh, this week, Saturday and Sunday, when uh, our beloved Rockets slash Celtics gagged on the big one lost uh, conference finals, game seven conference finals at home. Uh, the About the only thing I can say is the Celtics' absolutely pathetic three-point shooting was only exceeded by Houston's even more abysmal three-point shooting. Um, so, uh, but Jay, on a much more upbeat note, we have the two best teams in baseball playing this weekend in Houston, which are the Astros and the Red Sox. And I'm pleased to note that uh, the Astros won last night. Uh, nevertheless, uh, some great baseball. Um, and uh, we've now got an NBA Finals. So we had game one last night where Cleveland was the better team for 47 minutes and 55 seconds of the game. Unfortunately, a game lasts 48 minutes. And so uh, Cleveland lost because of uh, their conduct in the last five seconds. So um, the NBA Finals, uh, fourth straight one for the Cavs and uh, Warriors. And uh, we didn't get to see the Rockets-Celtics uh, 86 rematch that we were all hoping for. Next year for that one. But um, <clears throat> tell me, what, what, what was going through J.R. Smith's mind when he got that rebound? 
Well, it's hard to say. Jalen Rose uh, this morning on uh, ESPN said uh, he thought he needed to be drug tested, um, as in now, as in right after that five seconds. Um, it's just absolute stunning that a 13 or 12 year professional uh, who uh, absolutely steals an offensive rebound off a missed free throw with five seconds left would either not know or forget that the score is tied, t- uh, dribbling the ball uh, to run timeout when he had a wide open LeBron James getting ready to uh, who could have sh- at least got a shot off for uh, Cleveland to win that and that. That all turns on the fellow who shot the free throw, Greg Smith, clanked off a free throw with five seconds left that would have put Cleveland ahead by at least one point uh, where they might have hung on from that. So uh, um, whereas the Rockets were great for the first half of game six and seven, leading by as many as 20 points, uh, Cleveland led up till um, 47-55 and – and then gagged on it and lost in overtime. So um, <coughs> I'm predicting sweep. I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, uh, at least there's some good baseball going on. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it really is a, a shot, a dagger through the heart to lose that way. But um, Levon, LeBron seems possessed. He is just uh, playing some great basketball out there. So you never know. Uh, I don't think this is a sweep. But uh, it, it, it may go five or six, but I, I think it's going to take a lot of uh, uh, metal to come back from that loss last night. Um, so we got the sports thing out of the way. Tell us what's happening in Houston July 21st and 22nd, Tom. So, Jay, actually, I have a couple of upcoming events in Houston I wanted to talk about. The first one is, as you've noted, on uh, actually, that's not July. That's June. So let's. Oh, just- sorry. I, I, I'm yeah. only as good as the script I get. I know, you know, can't you just can't get good help anymore, can you? <laughs> uh, June 21 and 22, uh, Friday, excuse me, Thursday and Friday, I'm putting on a new uh, uh, master class, compliance master class, going to be held here in Houston at the uh, law firm of Ware Jackson. I've got uh, links to the information, uh, registration information available. And uh, in this master class, you will learn about compliance from the guy who wrote the book on compliance. And that's me. Uh, the next week on uh, <clears throat> June 28th, I'm actually having a book signing. And uh, in the support your local booksellers category, I'm having a book signing at the River Oaks Bookstore. So if you're in Houston on uh, July, excuse me, <laughs> July, June 28th, Hope you'll drop by and uh, purchase a copy and let me uh, put a John Henry or Tom Fox on it for you. Um, as we noted, the uh, Complete Compliance Handbook remains number one in Amazon's new releases in the business ethics category. Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon or if you want an autographed copy, you can um, uh, get it uh, directly from me. And then, Jay, I'm uh, very pleased to announce um, a podcast series next week. On uh, the topic of suspension and debarment with your colleague, Rod Grandin, uh, had the opportunity to interview Rod over a five podcast series, and we're really going to take a deep dive into suspension and debarment. Uh, I frankly thought I knew what that was, and it turns out that I was a little bit off base. So it's really uh, significant 
<clears throat> for the compliance practitioner to learn about these two tools that the government has, how they use them, why they're different uh, than both uh, civil and criminal enforcement from uh, the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission, how it works, what the remedies are, and uh, how you go through this uh, procedure. So I'm very excited. Had a great interview with uh, Rod Grandin, and um, Rod's a former uh, <coughs> chief um, suspension and debarment uh, suspending and debarring officer of the Air Force. Uh, so lots of experience and certainly uh, something that I think every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of. Yeah, we're, we're looking forward to that, Tom. So thank you so much. And uh, we will have that available on all, all of Tom's outlets. It'll be on the Affiliated Monitor website. And you can bet we'll shoot it all over LinkedIn and Twitter. So uh, I think that wraps up the month of May, and uh, now we're in June, and who knows what other compliance, ethics, and FCPA surprises we come we have coming our way. But uh, on behalf of Tom Vox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 105. Uh, we're still number one edition, and let's see if we can make this three weeks in a row for next week. So uh, thanks so much for living, uh, living for listening, and have yourself a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you have enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I'd greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. It was going to help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly wrap-up of all things compliance and ethics. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.